Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. If you're not using um, your own Bible, uh, you can use the ones in the seats around you. Page 827 is where Matthew 22 can be found, or at least the section we'll be looking at today. If you don't own a Bible, I'd be more than happy for you to just take that one that is on the seats around you, and we'd be more than happy to replace that with another Bible. What does Hanukkah have to do with Easter? What do you think? What does Hanukkah have to do with Easter? Are they similar? Are they different? I'm going to argue today that they have nothing to do with each other. They're at odds with each other. They're completely different holidays from the inside out. What does Hanukkah have to do with the Bible passage we're about to read? Everything. If you don't know about Hanukkah, you're probably not going to understand what Jesus is saying and doing in this text. And there have been volumes and volumes written on just the one sentence Jesus says in this passage of Scripture that has guided Christians how they think about religion and politics. And I think the key to understanding it all is Hanukkah. So let's follow along as I read. Verse 15 of chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Whatever I do with this passage of Scripture, my hope is that you too will leave marveled as these people did. The big idea of this sermon, the one two-sentence summary that will hopefully help you understand how to read this and understand it and apply it to your life is Jesus did not celebrate Hanukkah. He wants you to celebrate Easter. And might I add, because I... I'm kind of obsessed with this idea. Also, tack on there Ascension Day. For any of you that don't know, I'm studying in school right now, and I'm writing everything on the Ascension of Jesus. So so don't forget Ascension Day. But Easter will do. Jesus did not celebrate Hanukkah. He wants you to celebrate Easter. 
What in the world does that have to do with our text? I think everything. I think it's the key to unlock what is going on. We are in a series of stories of opposition. Opposition of Jesus and religious leaders. He comes in riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. That's Matthew 21. He goes straight to the temple, the center place of worship, authority, control. This is the Vatican. This is the Pope. Get that concept in your mind where Jesus is heading right into there and then he turns over tables. He flips over the tables that were used to sell pigeons to the poor. Probably not the fair amount, by the way. And doing it in the middle of the temple, a place where worship was supposed to happen and instead extortion is happening. Injustice. He's angry. This is not a burst of rage. This is not, he's out of control. This is a calculated decision based on his understanding of the whole Old Testament, who he is, and what he wants to happen in the week to come. This is is not a man who lost his cool. This is a man who is righteously indignant and angry at injustice, the same way you and I should be when you see those kind of things going on in the world. And he, by flipping over those tables, is saying, this whole thing is coming down. The temple's coming down. Your leadership's coming down. I'm the rightful ruler and king. I own this place. I'm telling you who's in charge. Now, if you're in charge and somebody does that, how how do you like that? Somebody comes into your house and just starts flipping tables and says, get out of here, I'm in charge. You're not going to like it. So they didn't like it. So the next day, Jesus is back at the temple. My guess is things are all cleaned up. Back as they were, business as usual, but now there's conversations. First conversations with the chief priests. So this is kind of like that Pope figure I was mentioning. Chief priests and scribes first were like, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Jesus responds with three stories, and after the second one, they're thinking, oh, he, he's, he's condemning us. He's, he's pointing the finger at us. He's talking about us with these stories. And that's what we just finished. These chief priests and scribes got rebuked, got shut down, and now there's a next group of people. Who are the people that are now confronting Jesus about, who do you think you are? Pharisees and Herodians. Herodians mean people who are servants of or entangled with King Herod. King Herod would have been a Jewish king, but he was appointed by the Roman government And so this is like, uh, is he really the Jewish king? And a lot of Jews are thinking, that's not our king. And this guy, by the way, he's crazy. He kills his own kids. He kills his own wives and get new wives. He's a crazy maniac, and he's got authority and control and power issues. And so you're either for Herod or you're against him, and there's a lot of people against him. But the Herodians are for him. They're on his team. They're on his political party. They're, They're happy with Herod. The Pharisees can't stand Herod. They want nothing to do with him. So isn't it interesting that the first verse in our text says, who comes together to question and trap and entangle Jesus in a trap? 
This is the most bipartisan example of two people that have opposite views of political parties coming together and saying, listen, we've got a common enemy. Let's work together on this. And so they do. Their common enemy is Jesus. What he did with that overturning the table thing, pronouncing judgment on them, they don't like it. This isn't good for the Herodians. This is not good for the Pharisees. It's not good for anybody unless you're a Jesus follower. So they want to trap him. And they're thinking as they're watching from a distance, ooh, he's good. I mean, look how he just kind of quickly dealt with the scribes and the chief priests. And and these aren't schmucks. These are like top elite Jewish leaders. And he dealt with them like, we're done. So they think of a good one. They come together and they pool their resources and they think of a doozy, guys. This question is like them coming and saying, hey, let's do a little coin toss. If if it's heads, then I win. If it's tails, then you lose. Ready? Heads or tails? That's the question that they ask. And it's a trap. That's why Jesus says immediately, knowing their malice, and calling them out right to their face. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. So what does all of this have to do with Hanukkah? Well, I said everything. The question that they're asking is about revolution. It's about Jesus siding with a political party and trying to figure out If he's overturning tables and pronouncing him as king, they want to know, what kind of king and kingdom are you then? Are you for Caesar, the Roman Empire, who's currently the top dog over everybody, even above King Herod? Are you for him or against him? Here's here's the backstory. If you don't know about Hanukkah, might you know that it happens around Christmas time. You might know that there's candles. You might know that there's eight days of lights and presents. Forget all that. Hanukkah is the remembrance of the Maccabean Jewish revolt. And many of you might be like, don't know what that is. Please help me out. So here, here's, here's the scenario. You're an American. You're living here in the United States. Now this is going to be a far-fetched scenario, Okay. Canada comes in and takes over the U.S. Imagine that. Canada comes in and wipes us out. Far-fetched, I know. (laughs) Nothing against you Canadians, but it's probably never going to happen. But Canada comes in and takes you out. You're not in charge anymore. There's no president. All of their socialism and health care and whatever else, like, we're Canadians now. We're underneath them. But many of you are like, no, I want to be an American. I I want America back again. And then, Canada's not strong, Mexico comes in and takes Canada out. So now Mexico's in charge, and you've had two different world powers come in and rule over, and you're not liking it. And eventually, a bunch of you Americans get together, you get your guns, you get your assault rifles, you get a militia, and you say, this is why we have a right to bear arms, just for this reason. And then... You take out the Mexicans. Canadians are done. They're gone. 
and you're in power again. You're in control. But then who's going to be the president? And then you're fighting with each other. But for 100 years, though, you're back. You've got control again of your country and your kingdom. And you're happy about it. Except you can't agree. And people are killing each other. Americans are now fighting. It's almost like now there's a civil war. What I just did was give you a modern example of what happened in between the Babylonian destruction of the people of Israel. They were a powerhouse of a country. Nobody thought they would get touched. And they crumbled. And God, God judged them. And he allowed them to get taken out by one of their neighbors. That's, that's the Canada takeover. And then Persia came in and took over Canada. Or the Babylonians. Mexico took over. Yeah, got it? And then eventually, as the Greeks came in and all these other different nations, there was a soft spot. Some Jewish people got a militia together and they came in and they took out the rulers. They cleansed the temple and they became their own self-governing nation. And that's what Hanukkah is all about. The self-rule of the Jewish people a couple hundred years before Jesus. But it didn't last because they kept fighting with each other. It was only about 100 years. So then comes in the big, bad Roman government. So remember, Canada comes first, then Mexico, then America's back. We got our country back. And then imagine, after that short-lived 100-year reign, Russia comes in and wipes us out and is this superpower just superpower over not just the United States, but the whole world. Everywhere you could imagine. And you are now living for a hundred couple years under the thumb of the Russians. You've had your family members exploited, abused. You've got crazy taxes. I'm talking like 60, 70% of your income is going to the Russian country, their kingdom. How would you feel about paying taxes to the people that just took over your nation? Would you like them? Would you be pro-Russia? That's the question they're asking in this text. Whose side are you on? Are you pro-Caesar or are you not? Are you going to pay the tax to Caesar or are you not? What kind of revolution is this, Jesus? What kind of kingdom are you starting you're obviously showing us that you're starting a kingdom. You think you're a king. You're riding in on a donkey. You're flipping over tables. We're seeing some kind of kingdom here. And so they know. Heads, we win. Tails, you lose. So are they going to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The followers of your kingdom, Jesus. Do you pay taxes, Jesus? Oh, Jesus is so good. Like, guys, this is like the best ninja move that Jesus does. Like, it's so good. It is so intense. Jesus responds, and he says what? You guys are hypocrites. Show me the coin for the tax. Jesus doesn't have a coin in his pocket. Why didn't he just pull it out and say, hey, whose inscription's on this? He says, all right, good question. I see what you're doing. You're trying to trap me. Like, 
He says it. He knows what they're trying to do. This is a lose-lose situation. But he's good. He's really good. He says, show me the coin then that you're supposed to pay the tax with. And they pull out the denarius. This is the coin that you would use for an extra tax. This isn't just like your income tax and your other one. This is not a big tax. Denarius is about a day's wage, which is a decent chunk of money, but it's not like an exorbitant amount. But it's just on top of. It's the one that's inscribed, though, the coin, with Caesar's face on it. And it says on the front side, Caesar, the son of God. And then on the back side, it says Caesar, the chief high priest. So, so again, p- put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish person. You already can't stand the Romans the same way you and I would not be real fan of the Russians. But then imagine you've got to use their coinage and it's slapping your religion in the face by every time you look at it, it says, no, we believe Caesar is the true son of God. Caesar is the ultimate high priest. That's disgraceful. If I were to tell you that when you read Jewish literature around this time, that there's many people that were disgusted as Jews by that coin, just the existence of the coin, that there's examples of Jewish leaders saying, we can't even look at the coin. Because it's blasphemous, and it's oppressive, and it's sickening. Jesus doesn't have one. Wonder why. But he knows who does. The people asking the question. So that's why he calls them hypocrites. Oh, you want to know? How about you tell me who's on the coin? Show me one. So they give him one. And immediately they prove themselves guilty. Done. He's already won right now, guys. He's so turned the tables that quick. If they've got a coin in their pocket, that means they're paying the taxes. That means that they're supporting the Roman Empire. They're either for Caesar or against Caesar. And by him having the coin being brought to him, it shows you're for him, aren't you? He just displayed to everybody. He outsmarted the smarty pants. It's great. The people in Jesus' day were filled with stories and symbols about slavery and battles and freedom. They started back in the Old Testament, the story of Exodus, of Pharaoh, of King Egypt being another tyrannical ruler that's oppressing God's people, but Pharaoh's unjust rule led to this moment of great liberation. And then there was the story of Hanukkah that I just told you about. But there's one that happened in Jesus' lifetime. One story in particular that if you're not aware of, it's written in Josephus' Jewish histories. 20 years before this moment, Jesus probably would have been a teenager. More likely than not, he knew this story. This was called Judas from Galilee's Revolt Against Caesar's Tax. You see, one of these further movements of Jewish attempts to reject Caesar as their king and God was to revolt against not paying the taxes. So we had the Hanukkah revolt by Judas Maccabeus. 
This one is Judas the Galilean. And both of those backgrounds are about temple and about taxes and about revolutions and about who's the true king. And so then onlookers are seeing another would-be Messiah come in and cleanse the temple, being asked a question about Caesar. Connect the dots, my friends. Hanukkah is all over this story. And if you don't want to look down on Hanukkah, then pick the Judas from Galilee revolt story. That's helpful background. Both of those things should help you understand the confrontation that's going down. And then Jesus gives the line. He says, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They say Caesar's. He said to them, verse 21, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. All right, so this is the moment that when you don't have Hanukkah in your background, you don't have the story of the Old Testament in your background, you're not aware of what's happening historically and then even biblically, this is where you just start departing off, as Christians like to do, taking a Bible passage and say, ah, you see, Jesus here is just simply teaching church and state are separated. Pay your taxes, worship God. You can do both. And I don't think that that truth is wrong. We just read that passage in, second, in 1 Peter chapter 2, did we not? Honor the emperor, fear God. If you'd like to read another scripture passage, read Romans chapter 13. Read Romans 13 and you're going to notice that you're going to see Christians are commanded to respect the authorities and government. So I'm not saying that's an anti-Christian teaching. I'm saying I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think this is the whole biblical teaching on religion and politics and that they should be separated and this is what our whole entire Western democratic government system is based on. Where there are people that argue that. And they take this Bible passage as the basis for it. Should you pay your taxes? Yes, yes. The answer was yes. Yes, you should. Is it kind of messed up when Christians say that they follow Jesus and they've got integrity and truthfulness and they cheat on their taxes? Yeah, I, I remember just about a year ago somebody telling me an actual conversation that I had with somebody that isn't really a big fan of Christianity. Like, atheist, doesn't believe in God, and can't stand Christians, especially because they're a bunch of frauds. And the example he gave was that they cheated on their taxes. He knew all about what they were doing. He's like, they go to church and act like they're these holy religious people, but I know what they're doing just to save a few bucks. Kind of was a little gut punch, right? Like, oh. Well, we're all sinners. <laughs> That's why we need Jesus. So do you, buddy. <laughs> like, what do you say? So I say to you, pay your taxes. But I don't think Jesus is just saying pay your taxes. What's the word in the English translation you have? It comes, comes from the old King James translation. Render. It's not the word pay. It's not the word give. It's the word give back back. Give back to him. And I'm going to add this qualifier. Because of Hanukkah, 
give back to him what he deserves. Oh, guys, ninja. This is ninja. This is, he already got them once. Now he gets them again. So, Hanukkah. It's a big revolt. It's a, it's a small Jewish militia. And there's a speech around Hanukkah time. That's a famous speech that encourages the Jewish people to fight for their rights and their freedom. Yeah, go get them. Like that kind of brave heart moment. Here's the speech. Listen to it. Judas Maccabeus, the mighty warrior from his youth, commanding the army, fighting the battles against the peoples, rally around Judas. All who observe the law and avenge the wrongs that have been done to your people. And then here's the line. Render, pay back to the Gentiles in full and obey the commands of God. That's the line from the famous rally cry of the Maccabean Hanukkah revolt. What's the last line there? Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Same wording. Do you see the connections? Do you see how everything has Hanukkah in the background in our text? Give it back what he deserves, is what Jesus says. That's his coin, right? Well, you give it back to him and give him back everything he deserves in full as an expression of your obedience to God's commands. That's what the famous speech said at Hanukkah time. Jesus is taking, I think, that same concept and reworking it subtly like a great craftsman. He's crafting. Jesus says, give back to Caesar what he is due. It's revolutionary. He is giving a revolutionary statement. He's also saying, obey the commands of God. Give back to God what is God's. In the Jewish circles that Jesus was running in, many people were afraid that revolutionary zeal would lead them to disobey God's commands. So it's like, hey, overarching, most important, obey God. But we need to give back to them what they deserve. And that's what the Maccabean speech's double meaning was about. Your duty toward these pagan awful, tyrannical leaders is to fight them, and that duty is because of your commitment to obey God. In other words, the first part of giving back to the Gentile pagan rulers what they deserve is predicated on the second part, because you obey God and you love him. Zeal for God and Bible meant revolution. That's the concept that Jesus is working from. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. What exactly is Jesus saying? Jesus is not sitting down in a classroom giving a lecture about revolutions. He's not on a battlefield urging the troops like Braveheart, let's get him! Like, that's not what he's doing. What's he doing? He's getting ready to die. He's already predicted it. He knows it. And every moment from this point forward, he is walking on eggshells and the opposition is mounting and growing and he knows that at boom, any moment, he's going to be hung on a cross just like Judas 
the Galilean. Jesus, the Galilean. He's speaking words of revolution, but it's a different kind of revolution. Way different than Hanukkah and way different from Judas the Galilean. Is he telling them to revolt? Is he telling them to pay their taxes? He didn't straight up say either of those things, but in one way, he said both. That's how awesome it was. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. If you have ears to hear, you know what Jesus is saying and doing. He's saying, remember Maccabees? I'm calling for a revolt. If you're a Roman, all you hear is Jesus say, pay your taxes. It's brilliant. He wins. He had a lose-lose, and he got a win-win. Jesus tells them, revolt against Caesar and pay your taxes. That's my answer. In obedience to God. But you need to realize this is not like any other revolution you have ever heard of or ever will hear of. As Tim Keller says in his Matthew or Mark 12 sermon, this is a revolution that revolutionizes revolutions. This is the kind of revolution that makes any other revolt or movement flipped, turned on its head. Jesus would not compromise with Rome. He doesn't even have the coin in his pocket to pay the taxes. We have no evidence that he even ever did it. All we're told is that he had no place to lay his head, that he was poor, and that people cared for his needs. Sounds like a mighty king to me. But not to everyone else. His revolution is the kind where he has no coins in his pocket, no dollar to his name, no wealth no power, no prestige. In fact, it will be because of his weakness, because of his poverty, because of his death that his revolution takes off. So he does not compromise with Rome, but at the same time, he does not advocate for resistance of not paying the taxes. He says, give to God what is God's, which is an evoke a call to worship the one true God echoed in Psalm 96 or the psalm that Tia read for us earlier in the service. Don't put your hope in princes. Our God reigns forever. Give to God what is God's, which is what? What's the answer? Everything. Not just everything in the world, but everything in your life. Full, total allegiance to God. Many people think when he says, now whose inscription is on this coin? Well, that's Caesar's. Well, whose inscription is on you? Genesis chapter 1, same exact word, icon, image, statue. Who do you resemble? Whose are you? God's. So give back to God what is God's. Or as Psalm 96 says, give to the Lord, you families of the people. Give to Yahweh his glory and strength. Give unto him the glory that is due his name. Bring in him offering. Come into his courts. Worship him in the beauty of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say amongst all of the heathen, pagan, Gentiles, our God is king. How's that sound? 
Give to God what is God's. Give him the glory he is due. Give him the worship he is due. He is the God. He is the king, the ruler. Worship in the temple was to celebrate God's rule over all the earth. That's what the temple was about. So when Jesus turns the tables over, he's still spelling that out by saying, true worship is going to happen in heaven and on earth over all nations through me. Psalm 96, give to God the worship that he is due. Immediately, that call is followed after this phrase. Great is our God, highly to be praised. He is more feared than all other gods. For all the gods of all the pagan, heathen nations are idols. But the Lord who made the heavens, glory and majesty are before him. Power and honor are in his sanctuary. Revolution. Because you should give full allegiance to God. He's saying pretty much the same thing as the Hanukkah Maccabean revolt, but with a completely different outcome. Because his call is not for troops and soldiers and money and power and influence through what the world thinks is important. His call is for you to die. Sell all that you have. Give everything to God and that will create a revolution. You want to sign up? If you call yourself a Christian, you're interested in what Christianity is about? This is what it's about. This is not the like, well, come to Jesus and everything will get richer and happier and prosperous. This is come to Jesus because he is ultimate reality. You might get blessed. You might not get blessed here in this life. But ultimately, when all things are said and done, you don't want to be on the wrong side of Jesus. It's a call to renounce all forms of godless, pagan, non-Christian, non-biblical forms of worship and serve the one true God and no one else. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. Many of Jesus' contemporaries regarded these coins, as we said, as blasphemous. You shouldn't even look at them. You shouldn't even have them in your pocket. The saying probably has a note of disgust to it. The only thing to do with something like this is to give it straight back to its pagan owner, give to Caesar what is Caesar. In 1970, there was a pastor from New York City that was preaching at a large missions conference called Urbana. Like 20, 30,000 young college students came together, and this New York pastor preacher closed out his message with these words. And I adapted them slightly, and I want to close out our time with this message with these words. One brief caveat. Do you guys know who Barabbas is? If you've read the stories of Jesus before, there's a man, as Jesus is on trial before he dies, his name is Barabbas. And this man is in prison. And John, chapter 6, 18, verse 40, says this. 
Not Jesus. We want Barabbas. And then in parentheses, you'll see in John 18.40, Barabbas was, and then some people translate this word, revolutionary or robber or insurrectionist. Those are the different translations. Josephus, who's a Jewish historian around the same time as Jesus, uses this word for anybody that revolts against the Roman Empire. So, who's Barabbas? Another Jewish man who has revolted against the Roman Empire and got caught. And he's in jail, and he's going to be executed and hung on a cross. And so here is Barabbas standing before all the Jewish people. And the government says, do you want me to kill Jesus or this guy? And they say, kill Jesus. So here's the end of this guy's sermon. Barabbas was just another guy burning the system of the Roman government down. He was killing people. But if they let Barabbas go, they could always stop him again. The most Barabbas would do is go out, round up another bunch of fighters, and start another riot. You can always stop him. You could bring your trained Roman soldiers and have them put an end to this riot. They could find out where he's keeping his weapons, raid his home without a search warrant, and find him sleeping in his bed, drag him, and then hang him on a cross outside the city so that everyone who sees him will never think again about revolting against the Roman Empire. Whenever there's a Barabbas, you can always stop those kind of revolutionaries. But how do you stop Jesus? They nailed him to the cross. They buried him. They rolled a giant stone over his grave. They wiped their hands and they said, ah, we showed him. No more radical movement's going to come from this guy. He's not going to disturb us again. Three days later, Jesus Christ pulled off the greatest coup of all time. He got up out of the grave. He rose again. He became the leader of a new nation and started a new creation. He overthrew the existing worldly order and established a new world order that is not built on strength and power of men. When they put Barabbas to death, it would end his revolution. But by putting Jesus to death, it launched his. When they took Barabbas' power and his weapons, it ended his hopes. When they took Jesus' power, it created hope for the whole world. So keep in mind, my friends, that with all of your tendencies to be militant, radical, racist, political, with the systems of the world, you must know they are doomed to destruction and that only God's kingdom will reign forever. You will never truly be radical. And the kind of person you are supposed to be Unless you give full allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom order. It's only then, when you can go out into the world, the world that's enslaved with hunger and poverty and racism and injustice, and proclaim liberation to the captives, sight to the blind, good news to the poor, forgiveness of sins. The real liberator has come. Who's your allegiance toward?
Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for sending Jesus into the world as the full embodiment and representation of who you are. We thank you for his wisdom that is unmatched. Who can counsel the one who knows all things? We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you, God, for his willingness to lay down his life. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. We thank you, God, for the outcome of his life-giving sacrifice, for the revolution that was started, not a revolution of war, but a revolution of peace, a revolution of love, a revolution of grace and mercy and forgiveness, of kindness. And so we pray now, God, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on everyone in this room and help them to align themselves with the Jesus revolution? Would you humble them? Would you strip them away of their idols that they're clinging on to and renounce all forms of pagan worship, whether politically or religiously? God, would your spirit convict us of all of our ungodliness and our syncretism and our decisions to try and do both instead of give full and total allegiance to King Jesus? And God, would you protect Embassy Church in 2020 from any political jargon or ideas that we are Republican or Democrat or that we care more about the election than we do about Jesus Christ? God, help us. We are easily prone to wonder. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. So take us, God. Take our hearts. Seal it. Seal it for your courts above. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.